Welcome to the Gospel and Justice Podcast. My name is Andy, and this is a show where we talk about God's redeeming work in the world around us. Today's guest is John Ashman. John Ashman is the president of the CityGate Network. The CityGate Network is a network of rescue missions all around the U.S., over 300 of them, and he is the president. I wanted to have this conversation with him, um, really as he is an expert in this topic of homelessness, and what does it look like as the church to come alongside people who find themselves in that situation. My wife and I lived in the Pacific Northwest for a while, and we got to see firsthand um, not only how serious this issue can be, but also how complex it can be trying to come up with solutions of what can actually make a difference. Um, So I think you're going to love this conversation. As always, thank you so much if you've taken some time to rate and review this podcast. It helps the show a ton. If you would take a few seconds to do that, um, man, it helps the show a ton. But thank you for listening. This is my conversation with John Ashman. Well, hi. Thank you so much, uh, John, just for taking some time here to uh, be with us. I think uh, I've really been looking forward to this conversation for a number of reasons, but part of it is the the complexity around this topic and how you know a simple answer doesn't answer too much. And so, I guess just to start off, um, can you tell us a little bit about the CityGate Network and the work that you guys do? Absolutely. Good to be with you, Andy. Uh, CityGate Network is an organization that's been around since 1906. It was originally called the National Federation of Gospel Missions, and it was started because back at the late 1800s, there were many city missions that made their way across the Atlantic. They kind of found their beginning in the United Kingdom, Scotland primarily, and then they worked their way south and then west. And they started showing up in New York City and uh, up the Hudson Valley. And these were ministries that essentially were churches to the down and out, to the poor and powerless, uh, people on the streets. And over time, uh, there were a lot of pastors who were very concerned about what was going on with these city missions. And they thought that there were people who were taking advantage of the poor. And so they thought there needed to be some kind of overseeing body to be involved with these missions that were churches, again, to to the poor and powerless. And so the National Federation of Gospel Missions was formed. And if you wanted to have the... Uh, be viewed as somebody who really knew what they were doing and was not uh, taking advantage uh, of those who were attending, you joined the National Federation of Gospel Missions. And a lot of organizations were part of it. Salvation Army was actually part of it back in the early 1900s. By the teens, by 1913, uh, the Salvation Army said, hey, we're big enough, we can do our own thing. And so they left, and the Federation reorganized itself, and they became the International Union of Gospel Missions. And that was the name they had all the way through till 2000. And in 2000, they became the Association of Gospel Rescue Missions. In 2018, we did a total rebranding for a lot of reasons, and we became CityGate Network. So CityGate Network is... North America's oldest and largest independent uh, association of faith-based life transformation centers and addiction recovery centers. In most U.S. cities, one of our members is the largest homeless services provider 
And in some cities, it's the only homeless services provider. Yeah. Wow. Um, I mean, there's so much there. How did you personally uh, get involved with this type of work? You've been doing it a while now. 16 years. Uh, I've been the CEO mm-hmm. of CityGate Network. And uh, I'm the first person in 100 years to run the association who never ran a rescue mission. Uh, that was uh, very unusual for them to bring somebody on board who wasn't a mission superintendent, is what they used to call it, uh, or <laughs> these days director. But I, uh, my key to the door to, uh, to lead this association is that I used to be in the COO role at Christian Camp and Conference Association, church camps, conference centers. Uh, used to be called Christian Camping International. Went back to its original name, Christian Camp and Conference Association. And after 15 years there, uh, the Rescue Mission Association reached out. And, and essentially what the search committee and the board chair told me was, we've run this um, organization for more than 100 years as if it were a mission. We want to run it as if it's an association. And you have association experience in this regard. And so we welcome you to to, to lead this organization. Uh, it was rough going because there were a lot of people who didn't think I should have that job if I wasn't a former rescue mission staff person. But I, I did take the job, and now it's been 16 years. And uh, coming in, uh, people would ask me, why are you making this change? Why are you, you leaving Christian camps and going to rescue missions? It's a difference of night and day. And I said, well, you're just thinking about the setting primarily. Uh, when you when you look at hmm. Christian camps and conference centers and rescue missions. In both of those, you are sleeping people. In both of those, you're feeding people. In both of those, you have chapel services and you have education and training. And and whether you're running a, a Christian camp or conference center or you're running a rescue mission, you do HR and PR and buildings and grounds and fundraising. I told one person the only difference, you go to a camp because it's a fun resort. You go to a rescue mission because it's a last resort. It's all about the ministry of hospitality. Yeah, that's so interesting. And you think about, um, you know, I I think one of the things that I love about that is that you are doing gospel work, whether you're working in camps with young people, adults, whatever it might be. But it's also gospel work to look for the, as you talked about, the poor and the powerless. And I think that's so powerful what you guys are doing. Um, What are some broad, uh, this is kind of a loaded question, but you look at pre-COVID versus post-COVID. What are some of the differences? you see with the issue of homelessness? Well, pre-COVID, we we had um, just all of our missions operating at capacity uh, because mm-hmm. of the way, frankly, the way that the government's response to homelessness has gone. Uh, you just look at all of the statistics out there, and despite the billions, with a B, that have been thrown at homelessness, the numbers continue to increase. And and uh, yeah, we can address that a little bit more. But uh, there's uh, there's this high need that was being met by rescue missions between CityGate Network member and Salvation Army. We pre-COVID numbers, according to the, the U.S. Department of, uh, of uh, well, actually it came from USICH, U.S. Uh, Interagency Council on Homelessness. The U.S. homelessness czar said uh, between Salvation Army and, and CityGate Network, we have about 70% of the homeless service beds in America. 
and uh, CityGate Network is a little bigger than Salvation Army in that regard. You know, Salvation Army, great organization, uh, and they're a much larger corporation, but they travel in a lot of lanes, of course. But when it comes to yeah. homeless service beds, uh, CityGate Network is the is the giant in the room there, and um, and so we we were seeing these missions full pre-COVID, and then we also started uh, uh, seeing a change in what was happening with uh, a lot of people saying, hey, you know, I, I, I want to try to get my life turned around, and they would come into missions. And so um, then you had COVID, and uh, after COVID, you then had people being released, released from prison, uh, you know, when they started thinning out the prisons, and they'd show up right. at a mission and say, um, you know, there's no place for me to go, and, you know, the statistics show that your, your, your chances are – uh, almost uh, two thirds uh, that you would be back reincarcerated if you didn't have something to go to, and so uh, they would come, and then you'd have people who were sleeping rough, and they'd show up at the door and sleeping rough means sleeping outside, sleeping in alleys, whatever, uh, and they would say, um, "We're afraid of this thing called COVID, so we need a place to stay." So they were coming, and then you'd have kids showing up and said. Mom said, "There's no food in the house. We don't. We're, we're not able to have an income. She lost her job, but you love Jesus, and you'll feed us." And so now you have more people coming, and then on top of that, you had the uh, the, the different uh, different agencies kind of determining what needed to happen in congregant shelters, and then uh, missions started losing their staff and. Because some of them were over 65 and volunteering, or they had uh, uh, you know, just the immune system issues or whatever. And then they came in and said, okay, you need to have 300 cubic feet of airspace per person, and you can't have beds uh, any more than uh, you know, be nine feet apart, head to head, to, head to head, and all those kinds of things. And so missions then started having to shut down. Uh, or uh, really thin out. Uh, fortunately, most of our member organizations thinned out. We only had probably about 5% that said we're going to need to close just because we can't work this. And a lot of it depended on their locations. So what happened in all of that uh, after COVID passed, these missions, by the way, stayed open. And the, those people were, were are just saints, you know, the way they've the way they've worked, and uh, many of them working uh, 18, 20-hour shifts uh, to, to serve hungry, homeless, abused, and addicted people. Uh, and then um, uh, what we started seeing happening was CARES money started, uh, st started to go away, and people would come back to missions. And so now we're seeing people kind of return. The staffing has not returned as quickly as we would like hmm. because there's still people out there who are being paid to stay home, you know, essentially. And so uh, I just talked to a mission the other day, a large mission in Omaha, and they just said uh, we're just now back to 100% staffing uh, this long after COVID. So we're getting back to where things were pre-COVID at this point, but it's just been uh, it's been a slow grind for the last year. Yeah, yeah. And you touched on a lot of it there, the different faces of what um, might lead someone towards homelessness. But could you just talk about, I mean, when you're looking at this issue, how, could you just talk about the complexity of what leads people into homelessness? 
Certainly, yeah. The, the government will tell you uh, that people are homeless because we have lack of affordable housing. Uh, and, uh, and and that's the primary thing that's pushed. And that CityGate Network and Salvation Army and other organizations, we kind of are together on this. We say, yes, lack of affordable housing is a problem, but so is mental illness, and so is addiction, yeah. and so is PTSD, and so are young people aging out of the foster care system and human trafficking and LGBTQ kids being thrown out of their house or running away from home and uh, lack of family uh, order and the lack of jobs, family dysfunction, just the list goes on and on why people are homeless. So you you yeah. don't have one reason. You have a plethora of reasons, and every one of those reasons needs to be addressed differently. And that's uh, what the, the big debate has been uh, over the last decade uh, or more. Uh, you know, I, I was being interviewed the other day for something on – uh, a, a television program, and uh, someone asked uh, about how are these 10-year plans to end homelessness going? I said, well, I think you can answer by just understanding that every 10-year plan to end homelessness in the country is now in its third decade. You know, something's <laughs> obviously going wrong. Yeah. And you were talking earlier about the, I mean, billions of dollars that come from the government into trying to help this problem. Um, would you, why do you think, I don't want to say it's failing necessarily. I'm sure there is good that comes from that, but I guess failing in reaching its goals, why isn't that money, I guess, creating a bigger impact? Well, the money is going into housing in many locations where it is so hard to get permitted housing. When you talk about the West Coast, I mean, California has a third of the nation's homeless right there, one state. Mm -hmm. You've got Oregon and Washington, uh, the whole West Coast. And when you look in L.A. at what's happening with housing, it's not all the money going to build a house. It's to get permit permits and to get contractors and, and to get advisory committees together and, and uh, impact studies and, and, uh, and then the materials that are, uh, you have to go through certain groups to get your materials. And by the time you do all this, the, the, the amount that it costs to build a single unit dwelling is five or six times what it would cost elsewhere. And so we build these and, uh, and we put people in them, but the, the bigger problem uh, is they don't stay. Uh, Andy Bales, who runs Union uh, of the units built for housing first, which is the government's program it, in his neighborhood, are unoccupied. Even though there's people still on the streets, those places are unoccupied. Uh, and, and a lot of it, that has to do with the desire of people not to be in there, but also fear because the people who have moved into these places uh, are drug dealers and gang members uh, and, and for various reasons, for recruitment or for sales or whatever it happens to be. And so a lot of people, if you can imagine this, feel safer sleeping on a tent in the street than they do in a, a housing unit built by the government uh, to, to take them off the street. Sure. It, yeah. And I, and, you know, from my little understanding of it, it seems to be one of the biggest issues is, so we make the whole deal about if we can just get someone 
into a home, but the reality is that person going to stay in the home maybe for that reason, or maybe it's a mental illness that they, they you know, can't function on their own, living on their own, and so it's actually easier. And, and so I guess, uh, you know, would you think that the government's resources would be better better used and better directed towards uh, resourcing people who are struggling with PTSD, struggling with uh, addiction. Is that a possibility? It's probably an oversimplified solution, I'm guessing. Well, it's very complicated. Yes, it is oversimplified. Uh, but one of the things you have to understand is, is the government tries the best they can to right. end people's physical poverty but they can't end their spiritual or relational poverty, which mm -hmm. is not in their purview. So that's why so many people remain on the streets or find themselves on the streets in the first case. Um, and, and what happens when these people are on the street is the, that um, they need services that fit the situation they're dealing with. And, and with the Housing First program, uh, nothing is mandated. In fact, it's, it's in the code that you cannot mandate services. So let's say somebody's addicted and they're placed in a Housing First unit. They're told, uh, you know, this is your place and here's your building supervisor and uh, you need to maintain a health health, uh, healthy environment here and keep it, keep it clean. And your drug counselor, is, here's his name and here's his location. And you have an appointment already set up on Tuesday at 9 o'clock in the morning. And they say, we wish you the best and leave. But there is no, uh, no requirement that they have to be there. There's no sense of responsibility for uh, in most of these people because they've lived on the street for years. So they may show up to the drug counselor or they may not. Or they show up for a couple of weeks and they decide they're not going to go anymore or whatever. And so that's why it, it just is not working because people are, are just continuing to flounder in this, in this kind of situation. You know, when you yeah. when you look at numbers that are out there, uh, the government used to say that uh, I remember years ago it was uh, there's 700,000 uh, homeless people in America, and now, now it's 680, and now it's 640, and it dropped down, and I watched it come down through the uh, 500,000s, you know, 570,000, 512, it was down to 530,000. Now it's back up. The government does admit it. It's back up to uh, uh, probably five hundred and eighty-five thousand. I think is the number. The last pit count, point in time count, kind of showed them. But most of our frontline workers will tell you the number is likely twice that many, because when they do a point in time count, people try to avoid those poll takers. They try to avoid. Um, uh, being in places where uh, homeless people are looked for, uh, and uh, you know, sometimes inclement weather gets in here. But we're, we we would say it's very likely that there would be a million people homeless uh, and looking for, for a place to stay in America. Many of them have mental illness and uh, an addiction. Sometimes it's uh, a dual diagnosis. Um, the U U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development will tell you there's 20% uh, of the people who are homeless have mental illness. 16% of the people who are homeless have an addiction. Uh, the UCLA study in California said, what are you looking at? Uh, our <laughs> numbers here in California are 74% uh, have mental illness and 72% have addiction. 
And so, uh, you know, those, it's more likely in urban areas, uh, in, in big cities, you'll see a higher number with mental illness and uh, addiction problems than you will in third tier cities, fourth tier cities. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it seems more, a little more realistic looking at those numbers. So my wife and I just recently, so there seems to be a tension. My wife and I just recently moved from the Pacific Northwest, kind of the Seattle area. So in some ways we felt like we were in a little bit of the heart of it, not California, but, um, and we really, what I noticed was there was really a tension between two groups of people. And, uh, there would be the one side that says, you know, to make a change, we need to provide more resources, whether it's housing, whether it's uh, addiction resources, whether it's mental illness, helping with uh, social care workers. And then another, there was a frustration that would come to the from the other side that I would hear all the time that was, well, the problem with that is you start providing all of these resources, all that does is congregate people who are homelessness. Now, again, I believe both of those sides are very over simplified. But can you speak to that tension? I mean, you have the background in this, the statistics. Can you speak to that tension of, yeah, what does adding resources to a community, especially a city, do? Does it just, I mean, redistribute where people are homeless or does it actually make a change? Well, we're reaching the tipping point, Andy, in in a lot of cities. You know, there, there are a lot of Cities where the government, and, and to be very frank, it's left-leaning government, is taking the homeless first, uh, housing housing first approach, and saying we just put people in houses and we can start to, to meet their needs. But it's it, it, you know at face value, oh that makes sense. You know rather than try to meet somebody's needs that's sitting here in this alley, let's put them in a house. But they put them in the house, and there's really not more that the government will do because they don't want to take away the rights of these people. They said, you know, they they have the right to self-govern themselves. We don't want to infringe on their human rights. And and what happens is that um, if you don't have or build in the sense of responsibility, you will have tent cities and you will have all of the things that we're seeing today Mm -hmm. that's causing so many problems. Um, You have some cities like Seattle, if that's where you were, you you know that uh, your car can be your domicile. So uh, you can park it wherever you want if that's where you're living, even though there's no parking zone. You go up to see the Space Needle, you can't get close to the base of it because there's so many cars and vans there with people living in in them and campfires outside Mm -hmm. and bicycles. It's just, just been a mess. And, and so uh, communities, I said, they're reaching the tipping point. They're saying, okay, enough's enough. What do we do about this? So the government tries to put people in houses. One reason is because it gets them off the street and it makes the city look better when the CDB is taking folks around to say, hey, you need to have your convention here. Somebody was at San Francisco the other day that said they were standing uh, somewhere up near Knob Hill and saying, and over here you can see the, the Bay Bridge and there's Marin County up there and there's the Golden Gate and and uh, everybody's turned around looking the other way where there's a guy defecating on the sidewalk and uh, people are shooting up right down the street <laughs> and, they, and, and it's just... It's getting to the point where we have to do something. Karen Bass is the new mayor of Los Angeles, and she's broken ranks with uh, uh, three decades of leaders who are saying housing first is the answer. She's saying, 
you know what? There's something to this when it comes to services. We have to provide services for people if if we're going to see a change. We just can't put people in houses. It's too cost uh, it's too cost uh, prohibitive right now the way it is, and we have to reinvent that whole area. Uh, shelters and transitional housing has been vilified over time by these uh, bureaucrats that have have looked at their ways being the only way. But um, that's being pushed back on the West Coast, but also on the East Coast. Mayor Eric Adams in New York City uh, made headlines not long ago when he said, you know, maybe it's time that we start reinstitutionalizing people with severe mental illness. And uh, immediately you had advocate groups, uh, advocacy groups up in arms about this. Uh, saying you're taking away their human rights. But I'll tell you, I've stood there on the sidewalks in, in uh, uh, lower Manhattan and in, in, the Queen, in Queens and in the Bronx. And what's, what makes more sense? What's, more, uh, what, what's a better way to go where you're showing that you appreciate everybody's humanity? You want to show dignity, saying, is that woman who's sleeping over there on that damp cardboard who hasn't eaten in two days and is shivering and is talking to herself, is she better there with her human rights being in her own hands, or is she better in a warm bed in an institution where she's uh, has has a, a mental health assessment and has her meds tweaked and and is is comfortable and we can start to deal with her issues. That's mm-hmm. uh, that's what we're looking at in these cities, and uh, while the answer seems obvious it flies in the face of the philosophy of those who say leave them alone uh, and uh, this will solve itself if we just throw more money at it sure and letting people have their freedom you know looking back um i could have my timeline off but looking back at the 70s 80s there was really a move away from institutionalization is that correct and what brought that about if well, so. that, that you know that started in, in uh, Jimmy Carter's day. Reagan, you know, they looked at it, they said, uh, mm-hmm. "This is inhumane. We have these people chained to the walls in what we called insane asylums, and uh, we've progressed farther than that as a society. In fact, look what we've done with with medicines." And so they essentially said, "If you take these." psychotropic drugs you can go home and live with your family you don't have to be in here any longer and so they started closing them down Uh, i lived very close to a state mental hospital in new jersey when i was a kid Uh, and they just uh, just rapidly closed that place up it became uh, it became more of a jail for the criminally insane later but uh, people who were just considered to be mentally ill uh, were released with this idea of uh, self-medication and uh, and constant family supervision will take care of you. And about um, 30% of the people who were in these asylums did that. They went home and they were taken care of and they stayed on their meds. About 70% went out and uh, maybe some of them tried it, but a lot of them just went right out to the streets. And that's what you have. It's as much as we'd like to give people the credit for being able to do the right thing, uh, we have the problem we have because people don't always do the right thing. And and so 
that's uh, that's why rescue missions are there to provide uh, not just food, clothing, and shelter, but an opportunity at life transformation. Rescue missions uh, decades ago used to be about that long line of men winding around the block looking for what they called three hots in a cot. Uh, or if you follow through history uh, of you know the 20th century, rescue missions used to deal with people who were immigrants. They were they were called hoodlums and and uh, and and renegades to society. And so some of the first missions in New York City were for warring immigrants in the Five Points area of New York. If you remember the movie The Gangs of New York, folks like that. And then you had the 20s, and you had the free flow of alcohol, and uh, and that brought a lot of people into missions. Then hit, prohibition came, and, uh, and and then later was was removed, of course. But you had uh, people coming in for alcohol issues, uh, even during prohibition, because it was still accessible to some degree. And then you had the 30s. You had the Depression, and the missions were there to help people who uh, stood in line all day to see if they could get hired for a job at the shipyard or whatever it happened to be. And when they could or couldn't, uh, it, when it was all over, they went to the mission and stood in line to get a, a bowl of soup and a place to sleep for the night. And then in, the, in the, the, the 40s and the 50s, you had people coming back from overseas, South Pacific, Europe, Korea, whatever, many of them with PTSD, which was undiagnosed mostly in those days. And uh, they ended up in missions and then in the 60s, you had all these new drugs and, uh, you know, hallucinogenics and, and what have you. And uh, those are the folks that ended up in mission. So every decade, we seem to be adding more reasons for people to be uh, in, in a rescue mission. 70s, we talked about mental illness and releasing people. And then the excesses of the 80s and then immigration issues of the 90s, family dysfunction, those kind of things that happen. Uh, and, and so... Missions still stand in the heart of most cities op- with open doors and open arms saying this is where you start if you're looking for uh, a way to survive these days and we can help you. We've changed the whole mindset in the last uh, the last decade. Uh, instead of missions being uh, food, clothing, and shelter over and over again, often to the same people, many of whom don't want help, uh, we've we've looked at this through different lenses. We say we're we're not about disaster relief. We're about life transformation, and so uh, we have eight S's that we put out for life transformation. The first is saved, and people would say, "Okay, this must be where you do the chapel service in the missions." I said, "No, uh, spiritual regeneration happens in any one of these eight stages. It doesn't just yeah. happen." coming through the door and you hear a chapel service because the, the world has changed. Culture is different. It used to be most of the people came to a mission in the 30s, 40s, 50s, even into the 60s. Uh, they came from homes where there was still a parent still, still praying for them or at least a grandparent or somebody, uh, and they were just considered wayward and had to make their way back home. Uh, they probably knew a couple Bible verses and a lot of Bible stories, but today it's – it's even strange for people to sit in a congregant setting like a like you know like a church setting let alone understand a gospel message 
So uh, chapel services are still offered, but a lot of our people are, are, have moved from the Roman style of evangelism to the Celtic style of evangelism. And uh, and I have mission leaders who are saying, I have more people coming to Christ in my dining room than I ever did in my chapel before. Hmm. So um, that saved, in that sense, in our eight S's, means you've taken the needle away from somebody who's about to overdose, or you've flung hmm. open the door for a girl who's running away from her pimp and slam it before he can catch up, or you're working with a family whose 10-month-old has has a 10-month-old whose brain and body development may not be where it needs to be because of lack of poor nutrition because they're living in their their van or something. The next S is sober. That means no longer controlled by stimulants or depressants. That's where the addiction recovery programs come into play. The next one is stable. That's mental health. That's physical health. It could be medical respite care that many of our missions offer these days. The next S is schooled. That means you're helping people with their social skills. You're helping them with their education, get a high school equivalency or whatever. The next is skilled. That means you're concerned about not just giving people jobs, but working with them to develop careers. A job would be parking cars for a sporting event or busing a table or something like that. A career means you're you're helping them in uh, in their long view of how they can move up and continue to make money as they become more responsible and, and know how to go through it all. And then a secure means you have your own uh, checkbook and you know how to manage money and you're financially secure. The next S is settled. That means you have your own safe place to return every night. And the last one is serving. That means you're giving back to the community. So most rescue missions that you see today are either doing all of those or doing part of those, but partnering with another agency or another ministry that is doing those S's that they can't do. And uh, that's how missions have changed over the years. Well, and I think that's so powerful, to think, especially going back to what you said earlier about the social and spiritual aspect. I, I was just thinking through the – you think about the book When Helping Hurts and how as North Americans we typically look as po at poverty as just a material issue. But when we look at it, it also involves the brokenness of uh, social relationships and our spiritual uh, brokenness that all of a sudden we start to get a fuller picture of what it takes to bring wholeness to this situation. I guess my question question is, what caused you guys, um, the CityGate Network, but missions in the past, to take that approach? Where, where did that holistic approach to this issue come from? Well, I think it came uh, with new eyes on the situation. When you're running a mission, you are full out uh, feeding, clothing, sheltering over and over and over again. Uh, you know, I, I'm as we already talked about, the first person yeah. in literally 100 years to run the association never ran a mission. And I came to the association and said, look at this. Here we are. We're this place that uh, in typical mission, you open the door, and on an evening, uh, there's uh, 50 hungover people sitting in this room. They can smell the meatloaf cooking next door, but they can't have it until they're reminded one more time that they're going to hell. And I said, you know, that's who we are as Christians. We're the most pathetic of all people. These, these <laughs> men know they're going to hell. Uh, in fact, they think they're in it right now. Let's stop playing the hell card and start playing the abundant life card and see what happens. And, uh, and so we started, um, started 
bringing forward the, the messages of people like Brian Fickert, who, who you just mentioned, who wrote uh, mm-hmm. Public Hurts, or Toxic Charity, or some of these other books. I wrote a book called Invisible Neighbors. We talk about the same thing. And and that's where we started to see a turn and and people saying there is a different way to do this. And, and it really is showing uh, that we are more than just an agency to do the same thing that a lot of groups are doing on the streets. We're more concerned about the long term. Jesus said, I want to see my kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And uh, that means we're going to have to care for people all the way up to when they're out of a rescue mission rather than just come to the rescue mission, get your food, uh, you know, over and over again and place to sleep. And if you're tired of living like this, come to an addiction recovery program and that's works. Uh, and and then at that point, it was, uh, we'll pray with you. And if it doesn't take, come back. And uh, follow-up is huge. And we see more and more missions understand that they have to do outcome statistics, not output statistics, but outcome yeah. statistics, if they're going to make it, get the funding that they need from major donors. And so it's just it's just a very large wholesale change in what missions are doing. And it's working. Uh, we're, we're seeing it happen. We're seeing the, the nomenclature change in missions from coast to coast. And uh, you, you, you still have missions feeding people because it may take the, 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 the 42nd time for a person to come and get food to say, you know, there's something different about this place. Um, maybe I should hang around and find out what they're doing. And that's when the counselors need to be there to move on. So feeding is not the, the issue. We don't saying we're stopping feeding. We're not stopping overnight sheltering, but we're putting more and more of our time and effort into those who want to go further because there are so many places that will feed these days because um, that's what most people de- think they're doing. And, and in fact, it's not just government agencies, social agencies. It's a lot of churches that are feeding. Yeah. And that's because most churches don't know what else to do, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're saying, well, Jesus said that uh, we have a responsibility, and everybody turns to Matthew 25, 31, uh, 46, and says, uh, in that day, you know, he'll look at the sheep and the goats, and he'll say to the sheep, hey, I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was uh, sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison. You came to visit me, everything else that's in there. And and that's the – so, you know, we can't do all of those. So we'll have a prison ministry, and we'll have uh, – we'll do feeding. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's our culture in churches, and that's what we yeah. do. You know, I, I look at the, that passage and say, God bless you, thanks for doing it. But nobody ever got out of homelessness by a meal uh, mm-hmm. because I've talked to a lot of youth pastors and they say, hey, we're all going down to, the, to Acacia Park and passing out pizzas to the homeless people. And so they all go down to youth groups down there. Here, have a piece of pepperoni in Jesus name. And they and they and they have a great time and they feed people. And then they get in the van, go back to the youth pastor's house, and the youth pastor says, now, what what happened, and how did it make you feel? And the whole conversation yeah. was about, what did I do in serving? And there's probably conversations about, well, how do you think those people got there? But the people that they served are still sitting down in Acacia Park, and they're going to be there until tomorrow night, until the Methodist church comes with hoagies or something. Hmm. So we just, right. we just haven't figured that out. And uh, and I think what most churches have to do is they have to partner with an agency like a rescue mission who is doing holistic care. These eight S's, the safe, sober, stable, schooled, skilled, secure, 
settled serving so they can help them move forward. And there's plenty of opportunities in a mission for church people to be involved deeply in all of these eight S's. They just don't have to go feed all the time because uh, when helping hurts and toxic charity will say, stop feeding. This is keeping people on the street. And for a lot of homeless people, uh, churches that try to help end up becoming that that homeless person's kitchen and clothes closet, and uh, th- that's all they need. Yeah, well, and it feeds the cycle. It's this quick payoff for us as as Christians and churches that we feel like we did something good. We felt like because that's it's a lot easier to feed someone than go on the long road of community development. Okay, so my final question, though, I just I think that's so interesting what you're talking about, and it's so challenging. Um, it, but I guess my final question is for a local maybe church member, a local pastor that says, okay, I need to take some steps forward and I want to go on that long journey of actually making a difference. Um, how can they start looking for those organizations that uh, that value those eight S's if there isn't some rescue mission in the CityGate network? And, and chances are there might actually be one in the network. It's just how do you, how do you find the right one, I guess, is my question. Certainly. Well, you have to be, well, it depends on what city you are uh, located in. And it's not just the big cities. It's false. We have 320 roughly uh, CityGate network members uh, from coast to coast. Some cities have multiple member organizations. But if you if it has to do with addiction recovery, there's organizations like Adult and Teen Challenge where you can get addiction under control. Salvation Army has uh, some facilities where they, uh, they they call them ARC, A-R-C, Adult Rehabilitation Centers. They're good operations. And so between Adult and Teen Challenge, uh, uh, Salvation Army, and CityGate Network, uh, there's plenty to plenty of places to look. Our website is www.citygatenetwork.org, and there's a directory there. You can find uh, where one of these 320 organizations is near you. And if that doesn't work, uh, give us a call or send us an email, and we'll help you find a place that's in your area. Some uh, some of our missions have satellite locations that aren't even on the website that we can uh, we can help them find as well. So that's the the first place to to go to to do that. But I would certainly look at reading if you're a church leader. Read when helping hurts. Read toxic charity. And uh, my book went through three printings, and there's still a few available here and there. Yeah. But it's called uh, Invisible Neighbors. It's done as a small group study, six chapters, three sections per chapter. It looks like what Jesus. Why did Jesus spend so much of his time with the poor, and why is there so much about the poor in in both the Old Testament and the New Testament? And 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 where do you find the doorknob to kind of get in here and and start doing something? So. Uh, yeah. There's plenty of resources out there. Yeah, thank you so much. I will, uh, in the links to this, um, I'll definitely put it to CityGate, but also a link to your book. I think that would be super helpful um, looking at this issue, but I'm sure it applies. The approach applies to a lot of different issues. So thank you so much. I don't want to take any more of your time, but I really appreciate you just taking a few minutes here and um, helping us, one, just understand the, the, the issue more, but also as believers, how can we take part in this reconciliation? So thank you for taking this time and thank you for what you're doing with CityGate. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate being with you. Thanks for the good work you're doing. Thank you.